All right, Psalm 110, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Pretty powerful graphic psalm, I would dare say. This is a psalm of David written about 1,000 years before the birth of his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you will remember there is a gospel event where Jesus' enemies have come to him, and Jesus presents them with a problem. He says, let me ask you a question, fellows. He's talking to Pharisees, Sadducees. The Messiah, when he comes, whose son is he? And they all say, oh, well, he's David's son. And then Jesus says, well, then how is it that David says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David is calling him Lord, how is he David's son? And they all draw back and they're, uh, 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 moving right along. <laughs> they don't have an answer. Well, of course, Messiah will be a son of David, but the issue really comes up, how is it that David calls one of his descendants Lord? Jesus of Nazareth, he is True God of true God, true man of true man, joined together in one person. All of his humanity was drawn from his mother Mary, who, by the way, is a descendant of David. His legal father, Joseph, is a descendant of David. Joseph actually has the right to the throne. You read the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, and it leads goes from David through all these reigning kings, and then... When they came back from the Babylonian captivity, there were no kings. But he actually has the right to David's throne. And he is the legal father of Jesus. But the genealogy in Luke is the genealogy of Mary. And that's from whom, and she is a descendant of David. And Jesus draws his humanity from her. But he is true God of true God, true man of true man. Joined together in one person, Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, uh, 700 years before Jesus is born, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with 
us. And Jesus asked the Jewish religious leaders, how is it that David calls his descendant Lord if he is in fact a descendant of David? And they can't answer that because what they don't understand is the Messiah will also be fully God, true God of true God, as it says accurately in the Nicene Creed, true God of true God, true man of true man, fully God, fully man, joined together in one person. They didn't know that. They hadn't put that together. And how is David calling his descendant Lord? Because we got to realize in the, all of the cultures of the ancient world, no father would ever call his son Lord. It just didn't happen. I don't care how illustrious your son becomes. I don't care if you're a beggar at the side of the road with a tin cup, your son becomes king. You still don't call him Lord. It just doesn't happen. And so the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, like, uh, 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 we don't know how, moving her along. Let's go, let's get out of here, guys. And this is the very passage that the writer to the book of writer of the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, is citing repeatedly. He's been camping on it. And so we step into the middle of this narrative of this letter here, the, his letter to the Hebrews. And of course, as we've noted before, these, the readers of this letter, the initial readers, are in North Africa. I'm just telling you what the early church fathers said. They're in North Africa. The author is Barnabas. That's the oldest narr- uh, mention of who, a fellow named Tertullian, who was born about 140 A.D., died about 220 A.D., just in passing, he made the comment, well, as everybody knows, the author of the letter to the Hebrews is Barnabas. Da, da, da. Nobody, it, it was just the common understanding. He isn't arguing for it. He's just noting it as the common understanding. Well, Barnabas and Mark, when they separated from Paul, they went to North Africa and did a lot of evangelism there, led a host of people across North Africa to Christ, especially Jewish background people. And... This is several years later. They are weighed down by the burden of persecution. When they came to faith in Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah, as their Lord, as their Savior, as their Redeemer, they were very vocal, they were very strong, and they were out there in the society being very vocal and strong. But over the course of years, the weight of persecution has increased, it's been consistent, it's been and their hands are hanging down, their knees are weak, they have lost their energy. And they, as we noted from in the beginning of this letter, they are being drawn by a Jewish cult that actually elevates the worship of angels. It's not standard Judaism by any means. It's a Jewish cult because anything that minimizes the gospel of Christ causes a diminishing of the persecution. It is only the plain, true, clear gospel, which is Jesus paid it all. Jesus got it all done. That is the message that really gets struck back at by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Anytime you minimize that or abandon it, the persecution drops. And so in order to get away from the persecution, they've been compromising the clear pure truth of the gospel. And the purpose of this letter is to rebuke that spirit and restore them to the loyalty and clarity of 
message that they had had before. And the passage of Scripture that Barnabas is dwelling on is the Psalm 110. The two things, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is God. Number two, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that is where we are stepping down into in Hebrews chapter 7. He's already been dealing with this. And so we're stepping down into Hebrews chapter 7, and he's getting into the details of this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek, that name means, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem. Salem, a town, a city, that later became known as Jerusalem, because the Jebusites took it over, and it was probably Jeb- Jebusalem for a while, and then it became just easier to say Jerusalem. And so, but he is the king of that city. So his name is Melchizedek, king of righteousness, but his title is king of Salem, king of peace, king of shalom. And this fellow, as he is presented, and by the way, this whole narrative is in Genesis chapter 14. Let me stop for just a moment. What has happened? In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, Abram. Abram, he's still Abram at the time. And he is dwelling with his father's family. And God calls him out and says, Abram, I want you to leave your father's house, leave all your relatives, bring only your wife (laughs) and your servants, and go to the place that I will show you. And I'm going to give to you basically the western third of the Fertile Crescent. I'm going to give you one of the most agriculturally productive areas. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seed, uncountable multitude of descendants, and I'm going to bless you. And the blessing on you will be so enormous that it will overflow to the rest of the world. A land, a seed, and a blessing. And Abram kind of halfway did what God said. (laughs) He got halfway to the land instead of all the way, and he stopped in this place called Haran, which is uh, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, not a place of blessing. And he had brought his father with him, and he brought his nephew Lot with him in direct disobedience to God. And when his father finally died, then Abram, Abram went on to the promised land, which had not been given to him yet, but he was going to reside there. And he brought his nephew Lot with him, and there's conflict between the two. There's not enough room for them all to for their households to be together. And so God, Abraham, Abram, Abram gave Lot the choice. Okay, Abram, you look around. I'm going to give you. Now, Abram's in charge, but he very graciously, humbly said, Lot, you pick where you want to move. You pick where you want to go. And you go there, and I'll reside in the part you don't choose. 
And Lot looked out over the Jordan Valley and says, I picked the Jordan Valley. Well, of course you do. (laughs) And he moved himself and his wife and his household to the city of Sodom. Moved to Sodom. Okay. Chapter 14 of Genesis. (sighs) Sodom and many other cities there in the Jordan Valley have been in subjection to some kings from the east, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And they had been paying them tribute for about 14 years. And finally, they threw in the towel and said, we're done with this. We're not going to pay you any more tribute. And so those kings raised up their armies. They came over and completely conquered Sodom and three or four other cities, took all these people, including Lot and his household, (coughs) as slaves, as captives. And so Abram and three fellows that he had made friends with, Anner, Mamre, and Eshcol, they all joined with Abram. And they gathered up all their servants, which was hundreds of guys, and they attacked those who had taken Lot and his family and all these other people captive, and they completely defeated them regained all the captives, regained all the wealth that had been plundered from the cities. And that's when this fellow Melchizedek, whom we've never heard of, shows up and says to Abram, this is what you're to do. You are to keep nothing. You do not keep any of the people. You do not keep any of the wealth. But Abram gave 10% of the plunder as a tithe to this high priest, Melchizedek. The only time, that's the only time in Genesis Melchizedek is mentioned. He's mentioned again in Psalm 110. And then he's mentioned again here in this long exposition in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament. But here is this high, and he is called a high priest of the Lord. And so Abram gives a tithe of all the plunder to him. And then the kings of Sodom and all these other towns, he's delivered their people and they've got their stuff. They come to him and say, okay, Abram, you can keep all the plunder. Just give us the people back. And Abram says, no way, Jose. It's not going to happen. I'm giving you back the people, the three men who accompanied me, Anner, Mamre, and Eshkol. They need to be paid from the plunder. They will be paid, but I'm not taking a shoelace. I'm not taking a thing from you, neither people nor stuff, because when God puts his hand of blessing on me, I don't want you taking any of the credit. All the glory must be God's. And so that's what happened. But here is this fellow Melchizedek who just comes out of nowhere. David has, excuse me, Abram has given to him this tithe, this offering, and that's it until he's mentioned again in Psalm 110 and then in the book of Hebrews. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, those who had come and conquered Sodom and all these other cities and taken his nephew Lot into captivity and blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, that's the meaning of his name, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And as far as the narrative, where did this guy come from? We don't know. 
without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, all of a sudden he's there, then he's gone. Now, there are a couple different views on Melchizedek. Some people want to say, well, he was a theophany. Okay, a theophany is a miraculous appearance of, a, of God himself. Theophany, a God himself showing up. We can see and hear him. Theophany. I don't think that's what the text is saying. He's simply a man. And when it says without father, without we don't know where this guy came from genealogically, and there's no mention of him again or any of his descendants. He's just there. But Abram knows he is, has a higher status than him in the kingdom of God format. So I'm suggesting to you, and this is the standard interpretation, by the way, is that he is a man, but he has a higher place in God's format for kingdom leadership than Abram himself. And that's very important to the narrative here. But his name means king of righteousness and king of peace. What can we say about our Lord Jesus Christ? He who has seen me has seen the Father, said Jesus. Which of you accuses me of sin? His worst accusers sought something to accuse him of, and they could never find anything. He is flawless. He is the Lamb of God who takes away this. He is the flawless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the sacrifice for our sins and taking took sin's judgment upon himself so that his Father, his Holy Father, would have perfect freedom to forgive us. He is king of, so this fellow Melchizedek, he is king of righteousness, he is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. There is this resemblance between the two remains a priest continually. Why do we say that? Because there's no narrative of his death. Priests don't leave their priestly office until they physically die. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, which is an obvious indication that Abraham understands him to have a higher status in God's realm than he does. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So here is... Here is... Abraham, who is the father of the Levites, offering tithes to Melchizedek, what does that tell you? In the format of God's kingdom, Melchizedek's priestly order is of a higher status than the Levitical priestly order. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Well, who did the blessing? Melchizedek blessed 
Abram. Not the other way around, which tells you that is the proof of proofs that Melchizedek has a higher status in God's kingdom than Abram. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, even in our own life experience, here, mortal men receive tithes, but there, he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Here, men who die receive tithes, and they have to get replaced by their own descendants, as in the tribe of Levi. But there, he receives them of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And so Levi is in his father, so to speak, Abraham, when he... So Levi is also offering tithes through that man who was his forefather. Therefore... If perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for, un, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? What is the purpose of Barnabas as he's writing this? He's writing to these people that he and his nephew Mark had led to Christ. They'd done this mighty work. And these people had embraced the gospel. They'd embraced the understand, authentic, correct understanding of who Jesus is, who Jesus, what Jesus accomplished for them. Now they're being pulled away, from, and he's reminding them of the reality of who their Savior is. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool and leave behind the great blessing God has set in place for you. He's created a format. Ladies and gentlemen, who is our representative before the holy God? Jesus of Nazareth, God become flesh. He paid sins penalty for us. He rose from the dead. He is our high priest. He is our advocate. He is our advocate before the Father day and night. He is our advocate. Not only when we sin is he reminding the Father of his own sacrifice where he paid sins penalty for us, but he is calling out to the Father to pour out blessing upon us. And of course, the Father had already said to the Son, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Jesus is granting us great sustenance, great provision has been given to us. This is the point Barnabas is making. He's trying to bring these people back to the understanding that they had stepped into this place of outrageous provision and blessing and forgiveness and mercy and grace the kindness of God being poured out on them incessantly, why would you abandon that? Yes, I know that you've suffered. But greater than your suffering is His blessing. And even in the suffering, He is qualifying the, the suffering. And God, by the way, I love the fact that God never, never minimizes our pain. He never says to us, oh, just get over it, Mark. 
He doesn't do that. Pain is pain is pain, and he never diminishes it. He calls it what it is, but then he says, I will address that issue. Whether it is physical pain, emotional pain, persecution, whatever sort it is, he is the one who provides. He is our high priest. He is the king of righteousness, which means he knows how to do his job. Righteousness isn't just a moral standard. It is also the capacity you have to do your job right. He's not only good, he's good at what he does. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? The people received the law from Mount Sinai, They received all of that stuff that's in the book of Leviticus in about 1440 B.C. David wrote his psalm more than 400 years later, around 1,000. And he's not referring them to seek out the help from the Levitical priesthood, but rather from Melchizedek. What further need was there for another priest that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? If the Levitical priests were getting it done, what need was there? There was a need because the Levitical, the whole thing about the law of Moses, you know what the law of Moses didn't fix anything. It was a diagnostic tool designed to show them, you read the Ten Commandments, what does Paul do in Romans? What does Paul do in Galatians? The Ten Commandments tell us what a mess we are. They don't fix us. They show us we need to be fixed so that we will do what? We will run to the sacrifice who is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The law of Moses fixed nothing. It just showed us that we needed fixing. And so we do not turn. I, Barnabas, am not telling you people to look to the Levitical priesthood, to look to the Judaism you were raised in, because the Judaism was, you were raised in was designed to do what it did, which was drive you to Jesus as your Savior. For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there's also a change of the law. We've got a new... We're, we're under the... The roof, we're under the work of Melchizedek, the Melchizedekan priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, not the Levitical priest. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. What tribe is Jesus from? He's not from the tribe of Leviticus, he's from the tribe of Judah. It's from another tribe from which no man is officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And yet, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest 
who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Did the Levitical priesthood actually fix anything? No, it did not. It showed you what the problem was, and then in utter frustration, you'd keep offering. Every year, you're presenting the same offerings. You're presenting, look at the Passover offering. Every year, they're presenting another Passover lamb. How many millions of Passover lambs got sacrificed over the course of those hundreds of years? And every year, you've got to present it again, present it again, present it again, present it. Why? Because it didn't work the first time, or the second time, or the third time. That was designed to drive them to frustration and cry out, Lord, have mercy. And what does John the Baptist say to the religious leadership? Actually, take that back. He said it to his own disciples. Jesus is walking by whom he had baptized. Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. And when he had completed Jesus' baptism, he sees the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove upon Jesus of Nazareth. And here's a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And what does John the Baptist later say to his own disciples as Jesus is walking by? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Passover lamb who's actually going to get the job done. He's going to get it done. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a nulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We can actually draw near to the holy God because of the work of the Melchizedek and priest and sacrifice. He is both priest and sacrifice. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath. The Levitical priests, there was no oath. <laughs> but he with an oath by him, by God the Father, who said to him, God the Son, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost. Are you in favor of being saved to the uttermost? I am. From the guttermost to the uttermost. <laughs> Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, 
This is the description of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is holy, harmless. Have you ever been helping somebody out and suddenly you messed up? And oh man, I just set back the program. I just, I, I just, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And that never happens with Jesus. He is holy, harmless, undefiled. Nothing about him that can be accusation can be brought against him. Separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens who does not need daily as those high priests to offer sacrifices for sins. The first job of any priest stepping into the tabernacle and later the temple was to offer a sacrifice for himself that day. (laughs) Not so Jesus, no need. First he offered sacrifices for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he, Jesus, did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath in Psalm 110, which came after the law, appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. That is the reality of our environment before the holy God. He has made complete provision for the reality of our the guilt of our sin and the power of our sin, it's all been cleansed. The guilt of our sin has been removed eternally, and God the Holy Spirit dwells within us so that we can walk in the strength of the Holy Spirit. But the ultimate solution will be He's going to yank our fallen nature out of us and throw it away when He yanks us out of the tomb. And we will stand before Him in holy bodies. We will be holy in every aspect of who we are. Our Lord has made complete, perfect provision for us so that we can be at rest in what His Son did. Let's give thanks to Him right now. Our Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are the highest, the mightiest, the purest, the eternal priest, which is absolutely what we needed. You are the only solution to our otherwise unsolvable problem. You have solved what was to us an unsolvable problem, but you solved it. We are asking that you will keep reminding us of what you've exposed us to this morning. Whether it's new or a reminder, we need to be walking in it. And we need to be dwelling in it. We need to be making it the place of our residence so that we see your power, your glory exhibited in our lives. And Lord, again, we hold before you all those for whom we uh, prayed earlier that you will address every issue all in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks. Amen.